When the Lord returns, you and I will experience true humility like we never have before. Think about a time when you have felt humbled before someone else. Maybe it was a a humility filled with shame. You were caught doing something wrong. And you felt a deep shame and humility before them. Or maybe you just stood before someone with great power and authority and you felt small and you felt this sense of humility. Think about the most arrogant, pompous person you know. And on that day, their heart will be humbled before the Lord. Every remaining ounce of pride in your own heart will be tamed as the Lord Jesus returns. Over the last weeks or months, you've experienced challenges, no doubt, in your life. Things you had no control over, trials, sufferings, bad things have happened. Other things have happened which you, you have done. We have we've confessed our sins together. You have done wrong things to others. You've failed to do the right thing to others. You've had arguments with friends and family, maybe with spouse or neighbors. You've sinned against them. On a larger scale, we could think about our state and our nation and the squabbles that go on within the political realm or other realms. You can think on the international level as countries wage war against each other and this country did this and this country did that and we're squabbling with one another. And when the Lord Jesus comes back, he will put it all to an end and we will all be humbled before him. For some, it will be a shameful humility where they are frightened because they know they will be judged. For others, for those who are in Christ, it will be a joyful humility, but it will be a humbleness nonetheless. It will, we will be filled with joy, absolutely, because our King is coming back, but we will also be filled with a great reverence and awe. You will have chill bumps down your spine, if, if that is such a thing at that time, when he returns, you will be filled with such humility like you have never known before. And he is coming back. But until then, we must wait patiently until he comes back to put all things in order. He will separate those who have come to him in faith from those who have rebelled against him in unbelief. He will set all things right. He will set all things in order. All these these spats among nations, among states, in your own individual families, it will all be put right. And we see a picture of this in the book of Job. And as we come to the conclusion of Job, this is what God does. He comes down on the scene and he makes everything right. He puts everything back into order. We saw last time God came down and spoke. If you haven't been here, some of this series in Job, we saw Job was the greatest man in all the region. He had wealth like no other. And yet he suffered like no other. 
And yet it wasn't his own fault. We get the 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 behind-the-scenes picture in the beginning of Job where we see he's not suffering because of some sin that he has done. Rather, Satan wanted to test him to see if his faith was, was genuine. He thought surely Job would curse God the moment he took away his wealth, his family, and even his health. Over the, the next 30 or so chapters, Job's friends come and they're debating the reason why Job is suffering. They say, yes, it is because you have sinned. You, you've done something really bad and that's why you're suffering so badly. And yet Job defends himself at every turn and says, no, I, I'm innocent in this matter. I'm, I'm not suffering for some sin that I've committed. Finally, he silences them. In the midst of Job's self-defense, though, he takes things a bit too far. He accuses God of injustice. He accuses God of not being completely in the right. He demands that God come and explain himself, and God does. And you know the response. Job puts his hand over his mouth. He recognizes in humility he has spoken too much. And he shuts up. We saw in the last few chapters then that God spoke. And in this last chapter, we see God acts. He is coming to set things in order to set things right. The emphasis on these last several chapters are on God's speaking and on God's acting. So as we consider our sermon for today, chapter 42, mostly uh, verses 7 through the end of the chapter, we will Consider together how God has acted in this story and how he acts in this time and how he will act in the time which is to come when the Lord Jesus returns. Notice first in verse 7 that God rebukes. This is how God comes in on the scene and acts. He rebukes. He, he tells Job's friends that they were in the wrong. See that in verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz. That's one of Job's friends who was accusing Job of doing wrong, and that's why he was suffering. So God not only speaks and reveals himself to Job, he speaks to Eliphaz and reveals himself to him and his friends. And what does he say to Eliphaz? My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. God's anger burns against these three friends because they have spoken inappropriately. They have spoken wrongly about who God is and about how he acts. Job is in the right. Now, particularly what is being sifted out here is how his friends have spoken of Job about his suffering. They espouse the idea of what we might call divine retributive punishment. That means you do something bad, something bad's going to happen to you. You behave good, and good things will happen to you. And we said if you read the book of Proverbs in a simplistic kind of way, you might get this idea that those who do good will have good things happen to them, and those who do bad will have bad things happen to them. Well, look around the world and you can tell that that is not the case. There are those who are evil, who are wealthy and can have all the power that they want. They can do anything they want. And there are those who are godly and humble who suffer much. Look at the Apostle Paul. 
Look at the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is perfect, the one who never sinned in thought, word, and deed, and how he suffered. That we can tell just from our world around us, from the scriptures, from Jesus Christ himself, that this is not the way things work. And God declares explicitly what we already knew to be true. That was wrong. That's a wrong sort of theology. Even though we, we often might espouse this ourselves or in our culture. You know, so-and-so must really be living right because of all the good things that are happening to him. Well, God declares decisively that this is wrong. But I want you to notice something in particular, and that is God's anger at their sin. It, it's, it's the, the words speak to heat coming out of the nostrils, to just a, a, a hot anger, right? You've felt that before, and you've sinned in your anger. Well, God doesn't sin in his anger, but he has this anger directed towards sin. And what was it that they did to make him angry? It was simply the words that they spoke about God that aroused his anger. In America, we typically, over the last two decades, have become less and less formal in many ways, which has, in some parallel tracks, has caused us to be less reverent at times. Think about, uh, well, you can look around and, and what we're wearing. It's much less formal than ages past. Or the way we speak to one another, it's less formal. The way you dress when you go to work is probably less formal. And in a similar vein, we can sometimes be a little less reverent with one another or in public settings, things like that. We've lost the real sense of reverence in a lot of ways, but there are a few areas where we still kind of have this, this reverence. One of those that I, I thought of was when it comes to the American flag and how it is used and how it's saluted. There are certain rules for hanging the flag, for displaying the flag, for carrying the flag. If you're carrying on a pole, you can't let it touch the ground. You, you have a certain reverence for it. When you go to a baseball game, what do you do? You stand up for the national anthem, and many people put their hand over their heart. If a kid was playing around and acting crazy during the national anthem, his parents would probably say, stop. You know, you, this is something you have reverence for. This is something you have honor for. How much more then, brothers and sisters, ought we to revere the sovereign God of all the universe? Specifically, as we're thinking here, the words we speak about him. We can be very careless about our words with one another, but even as we speak about God, we can be very careless when speaking about God. I think about the way we might use the phrase, God told me to do this, or God led me to do this. Sometimes it's, it's well-meaning. Other times it could be you're simply putting the blame on God for something you're doing. <laughs> Have you ever done that? And we can be very flippant in talking about God's will. I did this because God directed me to do that. Well, have you ever considered what if God didn't actually direct you to do that and you're attributing something, you're speaking something that he didn't actually tell you to do? You're speaking inappropriately about God. Or we might speak about how we like to think of God being. We don't have anything explicitly in Scripture to back up what we're saying about God, and yet we speak it freely because that's how we like to think about God. 
Again, where is the reverence in speaking about God? Or even if we're speaking theologically about certain doctrines or ideas about God, who he is, about how he's created the world, and we don't really have the scriptural backing to, to really give us confidence about that, and yet we speak with full confidence to, to others as we're debating them about theology, about who God is. And we speak so freely, and we, we don't even think about what we're speaking, and we should have a real reverence before God and a real, a real cautiousness about speaking words about God. And this text here shows us that. God's anger burned against them simply because of words that were spoken wrongly about God. This reminds us of the fear of God, which is the beginning of all wisdom. It says this in Job 28, and this speaks to a real recognition of our smallness before God, his power, his authority, his might. God does rebuke Eliphaz and the friends, but in his mercy, in his compassion, he also redeems. God rebukes and then he redeems, verses 8 and 9. Now, therefore, since you have sinned by speaking wrong things about me, take seven bulls and seven rams. Note again how big their sin of speaking was. Seven bulls and seven rams are going to die because of these words spoken. And go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to to your folly for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has so Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer this is an example of God's great mercy towards these people who had sinned Despite his white-hot anger at their words spoken wrongly, God provides for their forgiveness. He provides for their atonement. He provides so that things could be made right, not only between them and Job, but right between them and God. Note also the, the mutual humility that would have taken place here. Job's three friends have spent what in, in the book, chapters and chapters speaking about Job and how he had done something wrong and that's why he was suffering. They've been accusing him over and over and over again and now God says to them, you, you take a sacrifice to Job. This one you have been accusing all this time and he's going to pray for you. It would have taken humility. It would have taken repentance on their part to do this. What about Job's humility? These people who have been accusing you over and over and over again, I want you to intercede on their behalf that they might be forgiven. As a kind of side point, this displays for us an aspect of humility, uh, of repentance, and that is humility. You want to know if someone is truly repentant over what they have done? You will see a real humility. See, Job's friends are humbled before God. They completely obey what God says and take their, their offerings to Job. Job, please intercede for us. And Job willingly accepts. He has no, 
no pretense of pride over them. He, did, he doesn't say, see, I told you, you were wrong this whole time. See, God just said you were wrong. There is no pride left in Job. He himself has been humbled. And this is how you know if you have come to genuine repentance over your sins. This is how you can tell if someone has come to repentance. One way, their humility. They have no pride left to cling to. They're willing to do whatever it takes to make things right. When I was a young kid, I had sticky fingers, and I wanted to steal money wherever I could find it. So I stole $20 one time from my grandmother, Mama. And I knew I needed to plan to explain how I got the money, and I was good at being bad. And so as my brother and I were riding our bikes to the store, I dropped it on the ground and said, Oh, look what I found! $20. And I was able to explain how I got that $20. Kids don't do that. It was a very wicked, it was wicked. And we laugh about it because it is mischievous. And it's, it's amazing how, you know, your mind can work in that way to try to excuse this sin. And yet I was, I was good at it. And I finally got found out, some way or another, I got found out that I had stolen that money from my grandmother's wallet. And so I had to confess to her and I had to give it right. But I was not repentant. I was, I was really upset that I'd got caught. I was sad that I no longer had that money to use it how I wanted to. But I was not humble. I was not repentant. What would have repentance looked like in that situation? What would a real humility have looked like in that situation? We, get, we might could imagine some things. Maybe not only making the restitution of the $20, but sincerely and genuinely apologizing, and then maybe working for her to, to make up more than what I had taken from her. Giving her more, showing her honor Yearning to do what was right. Yearning for my relationship with her to be made right. And yet, it wasn't there. And when, when it comes to our relationship with God, there ought to be this sort of repentance and humility before Him. As we confessed our sins, did you recognize the words of what, what we were speaking, what we were praying? You have done those things that you ought not have done, which God has commanded us. Do not do these things. And we have done them anyway. We have rebelled against our Creator. I have done those things which I ought not to have done, and I have not done the things I should have done. I have not loved my neighbor as I should have. I haven't led my wife and kids as I should have. We... we we sin by omission and we sin by commission, and for that... We deserve for God's anger to burn against us. And there should be a genuine repentance, a genuine yearning. To, how can I make things right? How, what can I do to make things right between me and God? Some people turn to good works and they say, from this point on, I will start doing everything it takes to obey God and to do everything He commands me. And they they become a new person and they change and morally they look upright. They look righteous in front of everyone's eyes. Some people 
might know that they can't do that. (laughs) And so maybe they cry and they weep and they apologize to God, thinking that that in itself would be what would make them right before God. They know it works with their parents or with someone else, and so they try it with God. But what the Scriptures teach us, and even what this passage teaches us, is that something else is required for us to be made right with God. In this case, it was burnt offerings. Because they had spoken words, the Old Testament provided that sacrifices of bulls and goats would be made. In other words, something would have to die in order for our sins to be forgiven. Something would die in our place. We deserve death. These bulls would die in the place of these three friends of Job. But we also learn ultimately that these sacrifices can't do anything to take away sin. They never could, ultimately. Rather, they pointed forward to something, someone else, who could and would take away the sins of all who come in faith to him. This points, ultimately, to Jesus Christ, who is the sacrifice for our sins, who is the offering that God has provided for his people to be saved. That anyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ would be saved, not because they try harder to do better, not because they cried tears of sorrow, not because of anything that they could do, but only because of what Jesus Christ has done for them. Jesus lived the perfect life that you should have lived. And he died on the cross as a substitute for sinners as a substitute, in one's place. So I deserve to die. Jesus died for me in my place so that I could be forgiven and brought to God in reconciliation. And if you come to Him in faith, trusting in His work, not in your own, but repenting of your sins and trusting in His work, then it will count for you. It will be given to your account All of his righteousness will count for you. And all of your sin will be placed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this good news, brothers and sisters? Is it? This is the good news of the gospel. That for all of our failures, for everything that you've done, and you deserve to be rejected by God, he receives you because of Christ and his work for you. And this is what these sacrifices point to. Notice Job's mediatorial role in this. He offers the sacrifices. He intercedes on behalf of his friends. And this is what we have in Christ. He offered himself as a sacrifice for us. And he intercedes for us with the Father. He continually bridges the gap for us that we would be in God's favor Not only does God rebuke and redeem, he also restores. And we see this in the rest of the chapter, verses 10 through 17. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Can you imagine having twice what you have now? It would be pretty nice, right? Pretty good deal. Let's just double it right now. Everybody gets double what they have right now. We would all stand and cheer, right? That would be great. Well, this is Job, who is the greatest in all the region already. He already has, he's already Bill Gates of this time, and now the Lord doubles everything that he had. The Lord restored to Job 
his fortunes. You might note that he has seven more children, uh, seven more sons and three more daughters. And we might would conclude from that that ultimately he had not fully and finally lost his other children. So even they, in a sense, were doubled. God restores the fortune of Job. And this, this happens after he prayed. This happens after he himself repented of the wrong words spoken about God and after he interceded on behalf of his friends. Notice this term restores the fortunes of Job in verse 10. And this is a significant phrase that is used elsewhere throughout the Old Testament scriptures. I want to point you to two particular places. Note Deuteronomy chapter 30. Turn there in your Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 1 through 10. Give you a moment to turn there, and then also uh, Jeremiah 31. You can put your finger in that passage as well. Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10. Look at this. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. Same, same phrase there. And have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the works of your hand, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your cattle and in the fruit of your ground, For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And now turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. And first look at verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities, when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And then look down at verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, And the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor And each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, 
from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. As we look at Job, this last chapter, chapter 42, we might be tempted to say, see, uh, the prosperity preachers have it right. Because if you, if you suffer and you sin and then bad things happen to you, if you repent and come back to the Lord and seek Him with all your heart, then God will restore all your fortunes. Your suffering in this life will be relieved. Maybe you'll get double of everything that you had before. And all will be okay. But as we see this phrase repeated throughout the Old Testament, it is pointing further down the road than any time in this life, ultimately. It's connected with the new covenant. Did you see that in both of those passages? It's connected to the new covenant, which is Jesus who comes and imparts his Holy Spirit and circumcises our heart, changes our heart by his grace so that we, we love God freely now and we seek to do his will. And so with this, this end times in mind, connected to this phrase, we should see the restoration of our fortunes are found in Christ and in the coming of his kingdom. This is when our fortunes will be restored. In Christ and in life everlasting. Not this life, but in the life to come. But before the life to come, before the reward, before the restoration of fortunes comes repentance and suffering in this life. That's what this life is. Before the honor comes the ordeal. Before the award comes the adversity. Before we get the sweetness of the kingdom of God, we taste the sourness of this sinful world. And so when Job speaks to his brothers, uh, when James, in the book of James, speaks to his brothers and sisters who were facing desperate persecution, what does he tell them? He says, wait patiently for the Lord. Wait patiently. Because it's coming when the Lord will return. He is coming soon. Wait patiently. Now what does that mean, wait patiently? What does that imply? Waiting patiently implies you're in a place you don't want to be and you want to go to a different place. And the danger of American Christianity, the danger we face, is being absolutely content in the here and now and life as we know it. You don't, you don't wait patiently for a, a dentist appointment. You don't wait patiently for something you're not longing for. You wait patiently for things that are joyful and things that you, you love. And you wait patiently for vacation and for marriage and for a baby to be born. You don't wait patiently for things you don't long for. Are you longing for your heavenly home or do you have everything you need right here and now. If you have everything you need here and now, then the scripture calls you to repentance, to find that Jesus Christ is more glorious than anything you could ever have in this world. That anything you might enjoy in this life is nothing compared to the riches which are found in Christ and his kingdom. Listen to a passage from Psalm 126. It speaks of the longing of the Christian, the longing of those who are waiting for him. 
When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore the fortunes, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Brothers and sisters, you who are suffering, you who are facing trials, all of you who have recognized that this life is a a world of sin and that we are waiting for our Lord to return, wait patiently for the Lord and it will be worth it. When the Lord returns, we will be filled with a great humility and awe and wonder. We'll have chills down our spine, and yet we will also be like those in a dream, laughing and laughing, because it all seems too good to be true. The wait is worth it. Wait on the Lord, trusting in Him in the midst of this world. Let's pray together.